I'm Nishtha and I'm Pragya and we're your hosts for the podcast Intersectional Feminism Desi Style brought to you by Feminism in India. Today, Pragya, do you want to tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about today? Yes. So today we're going to talk about disability. So disability as a category of intersectionality is often seen as an afterthought. This is something that uh, a lot of people with disabilities and disability rights activists have repeatedly pointed out and despite the increasing movement for disability rights people and especially women with disabilities are not given leadership positions in most sectors most of our work is often done in public places and offices but these are seldom equipped with features that will you know infrastructure that will facilitate people with disabilities added to that is obviously the anxiety that most women or i could actually just say all women uh, and people from gender minority groups face on a daily basis in public spaces so there is a dire need to first sensitize people about uh, these kind of challenges that people with disabilities and specifically women with disabilities have to confront every day and then also push towards policy making that could make these spaces more accessible to women with disabilities in particular so yeah so we will be talking about public spaces and uh, how women with disabilities navigate through uh, public spaces and how citizens who are listening to us our, our listeners uh, today could take some notes on how we could do more for people with disabilities and uh, in policy making as well as in general sensitizing capacities and joining us today for our conversation is a very special guest we have with us today Nidhi Goyal who's the founder and director of Rising Flame which is an NGO working for the rights of people with disability especially women and youth in addition to being a disability rights activist Nidhi also is the youngest and first person with disability to become the president of the Association for Women's Rights and Development she's been at the helm of training programs focused at the intersections of disability gender violence and sexuality and she can leave you in splits because she happens to be a stand up comedian as well nidhi thank you so much for being here with us today we're so excited to have you on the show thank you so much nishta and pragya for inviting me into this fantastic show desi style i love the name <laughs> nidhi because we are talking about public sphere today and public spaces uh, for women public space has been a very double edged sword i feel it is obviously the space where uh, people most people see uh, empowerment liberation because uh, most offices and work is uh, beyond our houses of course there is uh, domestic work and that also needs equal amount of acknowledgement but often the public space is a, is a tricky domain where it is often seen as empowering for women and yet it poses so many challenges around safety accessibility of roads and uh, services etc and for women with disabilities in particular the same situation might become even more challenging as a disability and gender rights activist what are the kinds of difficulties you have faced or heard other women with disabilities face and how do you think that this public can be made more available to women with disabilities thank you so much pragya for that question um our understanding of access is important to make public spaces accessible for women 
right? Understanding of what access means for genders, understanding what access means for people with disabilities, understanding what access would mean for anyone living with a diversity. And diversity is not fixed, you know, there's a understanding that, okay, achha, I am not disabled, but tomorrow you may just fracture your foot and be temporarily disabled, right? Um, or something else may happen. So this, I think this, you know, the first I want to start by why access is important um, and access to public spaces, of course, um, in this whole spectrum, but the act the reason that access is important and the reason that disability rights speaks about universal access is that when you do and you know have an accessibility solution or make a place accessible or service accessible transportation accessible it is universal so it just does not just support or enable people with disabilities it would then, you know, to give a simple example of stairs and ramps, because most people understand that young children, toddlers use ramps, pregnant women use ramps, older people use ramps. You may just be extremely tired one day and you would prefer the ramp over steps. So thinking about access as a universal access is first of all, really important. And then we think about public spaces. Um, and access to these public spaces, what access looks like for women with disabilities is extremely um, important to look at, but, um, you know, because it's a little more nuanced than what you would just think for women or just think for people with disabilities. It's really this confluence of, in a very simplified way, accessibility and safety both. And they have a huge sort of linkage, right, a very deep linkage um, that they have. It often the violence, the public space harassment stories that you'll hear from women with disabilities are because things were inaccessible. So when a blind woman offers her arm or holds on to someone else's arm to cross the street, she's making herself more, more vulnerable to direct touch, to direct abuse. When a wheelchair user has to be lifted into some place, you know, when the wheelchair has to be lifted and put into a bus, we're opening ourselves to abuse right? We're increasing the vulnerability. And so for, um, for women with disabilities, you know, access to public spaces would definitely include accessibility, would definitely include safety. And, you know, when we look at it, it's not two separate components. They are weaved in together in a more nuanced fashion. Right. You know, Nidhi, what you pointed out, um, it actually, when we were conducting our research, we were, I, I, I came across an interview where you had also mentioned that the whole concept of consent uh, when it comes to people with disabilities becomes very different from, uh, say, in a, what popular media would have us to believe is always sexual consent or romantic consent. So I think that does definitely tie in with what you just spoke about. So in this uh, show, what we, what's a constant effort on our part is to always try to Un unwrap and take a look at how uh, different identities overlap to contribute to a person's lived experiences. So one thing that we really wanted to know is how does caste, class and gender influence people with disabilities and their access to public spaces? And, and can you tell us how intersectionality plays out within people with disabilities and how this really then decides their mobility and access to public spaces? Um, I'd like to step back and um, respond to one of the things that you were just mentioning around consent. Um, and I think we, it's again very interesting because um, 
when people with disabilities, I think one of the biggest stigma that they carry is of infantilization or the stigmatized attitude that they have to behavior that they have to face is of infantilization, right? And so non-disabled folks are constantly, and when I say non-disabled folks, it's not you and Prakya, it's just in general, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using a general statement. Um, majority um, of the behaviors are around infantilizing people with disabilities, which means when you immediately infantilize someone, which means you're making them childlike. What do children not have? The agency. For us, uh, as a society, legally, what do children not have? The ability to consent. Uh, and I'm not talking as an activist, as a feminist, or as a child rights activist. I'm talking about uh, a general perception of children right like how how uh, legally one how you can never consent you can never have a contractual ob obligation um socially or like it's this one's a child why do you want to ask them we can just decide on behalf of them so by these attitudes and legalities we take away the agency the autonomy the choice and consent all of people with disabilities right and so suddenly you'll find a 20 year old person with a disability not being asked before being dragged somewhere or not being being checked, you know, or requested or, or asked or encouraged before eating something. Like I, I generally say when I go to public conferences, et cetera, and if someone's assisting me, it's very interesting how I will ask for three things. And then my, when my plate comes, there are seven or three different things. And if I get upset, people around me are really upset because they're like, oh, someone's helping you. Just be grateful and be done with it. You know, if you ask for three and someone gives seven, it's fine. But what we are constantly doing with this kind of behavior is are a couple of things, and I'm sorry I'm deviating from your intersectionality question, but I think this is extremely important to understand. Where, you know, from this example, I can tell you there are two things. One, you dismiss what the person with a disability wants. So they can't decide, they can't choose, right? So there's no question of consent then. And the second, what we're doing is we're constantly telling a person with a disability, at least someone's doing this. Come on. Like, at least someone helped you. Um, why do you want to protest? Right. And when these kinds of behaviors or stigma or discrimination lands on a person with a disability, and these are the narratives, the dominant narratives around them, they kind of start internalizing it. So often street sexual harassment for women with disabilities is extremely difficult to identify as street sexual harassment. It becomes a disability harassment. And as soon as you shift that and remove the street sexual harassment bit, um, you know, or like that's why you don't have access to spaces. The minute you remove that, it stops being a feminist issue. It becomes, oh, that's disability because they're disabled, right? So there's a constant blame on the disability. There's a constant, it's very similar to how women are like, yeah, yeah, it, you deserve it. You did this, that is why. You went out at night. So it's, it's, it's your behavior that's responsible for this abuse. And for women with disabilities, it's like your disability is responsible for the abuse. It's nothing to do with you're a woman. And this constant ungendering also. So there are so many layers to the safety in public spaces or to have a good public access experience are so many because it, it comes from this whole space of, oh, you're not a woman enough. Who's going to actually harass you? Like, what are you even talking about? Why should we be? You know, when we say all women should be safe, even as feminists, does an image of a disabled woman come to our mind? 
and it's an honest question for everyone to reflect some could obviously say of course it comes like there's no question don't try to act smart <laughs> but this question for each of us to reflect that women from where come to our mind right when we say that there is an abusive behavior it's very similar to and it cuts across right when we say oh domestic violence immediately people be like oh they are not well to do people they live in slums and all and i'm again using very common everyday language because we think domestic violence is class based right and a lot of people think that we think um safety of public spaces is for working women because they get out but then we are totally killing the idea of loitering we're totally doing away with the idea of uh hanging out chilling you know accessing space like it's your own so um women across different identities when we say it should be safe and accessible for all women the first major question is who is this all who are these all women that we're talking about who comes to our mind when we say all women right which areas when we say public spaces are we only looking at neatly trimmed uh, lawns in probably south delhi or central delhi or are we thinking of um your naraman point in mumbai are we do we think of that public space a common square which is um which is where a lot of women from the chawls hang out or need to access these spaces or near 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 an urban slum do we think circle near the urban slum which is a hot spot for like golgappa and pani puri and junk junk food right so i think for us um when we stand at different intersections or we don't occupy certain intersections our uh, understanding of public space as well as all women both get very very skewed um or skewed to a certain extent right um i don't know if i confused you more or i sort of added a layer to the conversation but i really wanted to bring that um up for us to even reflect thank you for that nidhi i'm actually going to go back to an earlier question that you had said that many a times people with disabilities are infantilized and that takes away from their consent and from their agency now um when we were actually researching for this episode i went and i listened to a lot of your stand up pieces so i'm also coming from a fan girl perspective but um one uh, recurring theme not just in your work that i came across but also um i mean feminism in india has a whole host of work that's hosted on this which is the entire trope of inspiration porn you know and how often persons with disabilities are put up pedestal can you just shed some light uh, on why this perception of person with disabilities can be harmful and problematic especially when again coming back it comes to representation in public spheres okay should i turn this around should i interview you both for a bit <laughs> spontaneously um you do you remember many i mean even now it continues for many years women have been called devis goddesses um superwomen and why is it a problem again i mean it's just this strange dehumanizing expectation that you know we're only present for like one thing it, like in a technical term that's almost like benevolent sexism where you sort of uh club and categorize women into this one person and if they are not that if they are not a devi if they are not a goddess then they are 
bad women and uh, so you either have devi or you have bad women and there is no sort of space in between i mean that's the way that i view it yeah because the treatment in real life is not the same it's just a, a romantic way of thinking about women and uh, portraying them in a way that to to imply that the society in general really um, respects women but all of these are really romantic categories of describing women but in real life it's so much different there is so much gap between what is preached uh, and what is practiced brilliant so i'm just going to take both these answers and explain to you why inspiration porn is difficult right when you call someone you're so inspiring it's just something that you say right you don't really a you like you said you know the behavior in real life is really not the same um you really don't think that people with disabilities are you know amongst the capable of our lot right our lot is the main thing to remember uh it is to put someone on a pedestal what happens when you put someone on a pedestal they don't become ours like they're not like ours or they're not like us um they're someone above us they're like amazing this is too good this is too good but we are normal people and this is to raise someone out of the normal box right and that's the real problem the second thing is um what you said um nishta that this is an ideal and you should really be there so for people with disabilities you're either inspiring or you're a loser okay i mean something an object of pity there's nothing in between you can't be an average disabled person and i kept saying this all through my college or later in my post graduation i was like can i just be an average disabled student or something like that like can i can why is there no right to be an average student because i live with a disability right either i have to be like this oh my god i struggle a lot to pass or wow look in spite of her disability she also can do this right um and the, it is a lot of condescension it comes from a space of we don't realize because it's a thing that people use it for but it also comes from a space of you're not you're not like us one um you're either this or you're totally dropped so we put you above normal or below normal you're not normal third now because you're this super normal person and that's what that's what is with super women devi mahan goddess etc etc is that now you don't need any support from us so there is no responsibility from people around the all the onus of your safety of your mental health of excelling of balancing family and work of like living of being this ideal person all the onus is on you so it's a very very easy route to take um because then suddenly society has no onus they can stigmatize you but you've combated that they can create barriers but you've gone beyond that they can be unhelpful and purposely discriminatory you don't care about them you just looked at your goal they could abuse you but you are you know you f- find your own ways like things like that right it's the onus on you uh because society doesn't want to engage with you government state doesn't want to engage with you doesn't want to provide that support so it's a very clever rouge uh to say you're not like us and you're basically a problem but in a positive way i do want to also say that um while i see this and i objected uh, i was at the internet governance forum in france um 
pre-COVID times in Paris. And somebody after my talk came and said, you were so inspiring. And, uh, you know, and she probably like you Googled me up. And then she came back to me after some time. And she said, listen, like when I said you were inspiring, I didn't mean like you as a person. What you spoke about, your expertise, the points that you made were really inspiring for my activism. And so there is also this thing that because of this kind of overarching stigma or condescension that people with disabilities face, we're like, we're not inspiring. Just keep quiet. right? <laughs> so, um, but someone's work can be inspiring. Um, and a simple way to look at it is the day you think people with disabilities are your competition, you're already putting them in your category. <laughs> I think that's the easiest thing to say, right? Because you often are like, huh, what can they do? Or like, wow, they're beyond us. Forget them, forget them. <laughs> okay so that was something also i had in my head actually today because i think i know you from uh, uh, one year i've followed your work and everything and i just just love the way you talk and the way whatever you say it's so um in depth and gives me so many new perspectives and i do not know whether that might you know just uh, be offensive if i express something of that sort to someone like you so that would be an honest confession uh, from my I side. I eased your mind today, Pragya. <laughs> that's what that's what comedians do. They come, they make you really uncomfortable, and then you then they make you happy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so um, moving on, I I also know that you really like Ching movies, or uh, you really like pop culture uh, from your talks. Uh, because you give a lot of examples from pop culture and pop culture is a very very significant part of the public sphere uh, a lot of our behavior in public spaces are shaped by our pop culture influence and whatever is we see on our televisions on netflix and all of these things but when it comes to representation of people with disabilities in pop culture i i uh, i will go back to a point that you mentioned that it's always there is this sense that the society tries to say that at least there is some representation, right? They keep on saying things like, okay, this director might have made a flawed representation of people with disabilities, but just be happy with that representation because at least there is someone making a film. So there is this continuous push to just be content with the little that we see, that little representation that people with disabilities might find themselves in pop culture. My uh, question would be that how do you think that then Bollywood or in general say mass media can do better uh, uh, in these regards rather than just try to either you know demonize in some pop culture representation or again that sort of inspiration porn uh, kind of uh, representation that that we often see like is is can we find better representation and if if we can how can we do so <laughs> just everything we have to settle for at least on everything right like this is a constant narrative like hey don't worry at least there's this is there this is a start like for years we've only been starting what's really happening right? um but i think it's interesting you know pop culture representations of disability are very gradually increasing although flawed um <laughs> contradicting myself but um it's interesting because I feel like, um, I don't know what to say, sorry. I can take up the whole episode with this pop culture piece. Um, one, I use a lot of pop culture examples because that's what people understand. You know, there was this parliamentarian who basically said, after watching Tari Zameeper, we really know what dyslexia means. 
right and i was like uh yeah and a lot of people came started coming up to like parents of dyslexic kids and said ah but your kid must be an artist some form of an art or the other and you're like just like can you just shut up <laughs> so it's also very interesting because i hope people don't think after kabul i can start like jumping from 10 feet and killing people and uh you know having super super human um whatever right ability to respond to sound and smell and things like that so um i think what we're representing the problem is um pop culture is pervasive right and people really believe people shape their understanding their beliefs their exposure and you you know it's a circle the beliefs shape pop culture and the pop pop culture heavily shapes the beliefs but it's also very interesting because nobody says you know oh, this is a film where there's a hero at least there's a man why is it such a given that there will be a hero in every film right uh and that's okay nobody has to tell them this representation like they never have to be like acha humko bhi to le aao please right and uh, so it's very similar to like okay but what diversity of men are we showing even if we look at men and their diversity forget about women and their diversity um we're not showing diversity the problem with pop culture is lack of diversity now there are biopics that have come up very uh, recently but i'll give you a few examples and you tell me how i mean or just think about how it reflects right let's start from my favorite favorite director sanjay leela bansali's films and i i have hated each of his film with like a different vigor kamoshi where the young child who's non disabled and her deaf parents are like using her to um further their employment and she from a young age poor thing has to like really support them and this you know invoking this pity for the parents but also the child right and then you move to films like black and then films like man right and you say where is this going the non disabled child is a poor thing the non disabled partner is a poor thing and disability is such a burden and that's a constant narrative in sanjali lavansali's films right that disability is a burden in of itself on society on families and partners and romantic relationships and familial relationships in general right and from there we move to movies like zero where the woman on the wheelchair could be a very very accomplished scientist but she has to prove her worth by picking up a pen it's i don't i don't know what level of ridiculousness is this right it's also to say that you could be someone who went to the moon and came back but if you don't know how to make like rajma chawal you really not worth it <laughs> i i don't understand but sure i mean that's actually a really relevant example now that i think about it even um what was that film with rithik uh, roshan that was also a sanjali lavansali oh, film oh, no no gazarish no, no. gazarish yeah yeah, yeah gazarish also didn't i say they all burdens yeah we're yeah. all a burden i'm so sorry girls <laughs> <laughs> no but also like books and everything right books about everyday life and i was reading this very fantastic book let me end at a positive note on popular culture right i was reading this beautiful book recommended by a colleague of mine um a quiet kind of thunder and it's just a teenage love story um mm-hmm. and this teenage love story has a deaf uh, young boy 
and a young woman who has selective mutism and high anxiety. And that's it. And they have their own challenges, but they also have their moments and they also fight and they also are jealous. And um, it's so important to just see disabled people in our everyday lives. And I think that's what's missing. How many children's books have disability? Fairy tales, to forget it. But like, how many children's books have disability? How many young adults? How many teenage romances have disability? How many suspense thrillers have disability where it's not this card villain, like this limping footprint leaving like a mark, you know, in just your everyday interaction. I think that's exactly what's missing. And just to say that, at Rising Flame, we'll next year hopefully have the publication out. Um, we just have a three-month-long workshop, three, three-and-a-half-month-long workshop called My Tale 2, where women with disabilities from across South Asia came together and reclaimed the narrative. So they rewrote Disney fairy tales. And so we have an autistic ugly duckling. We have uh, a deaf snow and so on and so forth. So, yeah. That is, that is such a great thing to like i think i think uh it was first the feminist perspectives who wanted to rewrite the the uh, very patriarchal what stories uh what are those princess stories and everything and now there is a more so i think uh, gradually we but that's are... exactly pragya i want to ask that when we were doing feminist rewritings how many mm-hmm. of us did intersectional feminist rewritings like why do women with disabilities have to do a disability rewriting yeah also doing a feminist and disability i don't know what they did right we just reclaimed fairy tales Mm -hmm. so i'm not saying that it's a disability reclamation i'm just saying that as women with disabilities we just reclaim fairy tales and i think this is a classic example of how we could be a little more intentional um you know inclusion just by saying for all doesn't help because it may, everybody may not have the same access to opportunities, right? So everybody may not be able to be there at a feminist retelling. But can we as privileged feminists, putting myself in that space, right? I'm a disabled feminist and I say I'm privileged. Um, so can we as privileged feminists think of that one more step of intersection? Thank you for pointing that out because that leads me to my next question. And that is basically... See, uh, the feminist movement, even like every other movement uh, has its own flaws. To be honest, there are certain people who are leading it and there are certain people who are pushed back and their uh, voices are just left unheard. My next question is about how do you think uh, and do you think actually that the feminist movement in India has been aware and active about the specific challenges that people with disabilities face and has the mainstream feminist movement and here mainstream, you know how, how I am trying to define it, the ones who uh, get most of the space uh, available. Do you think that they have done anything to acknowledge these intersectionalities? And if there are contemporary issues that you do not, that you think that do not get highlighted, even within such liberal spaces when it comes to questions of accessibility of people with disabilities and disability rights so this is you know the movement is so vast and so diverse that i cannot say the entire movement is like this right there are actors from within the movement who are really supportive of disability rights there are some actors within the movement who think that tokenistic inclusion is good um and that's why they're comfortable leaving it and there's some actors who are like oh we don't they can all be put on like one marginalized voices panel. <laughs> and it's amazing because I know that's still tokenistic. Inclusion. 
spaces where they're like, Achha, this is not a disability issue. So let's not, let's not even invite them. Right. And I think um, it's really about who are you in which space do you stand and how sensitive um, as an actor within the feminist movement, as a feminist within the feminist movement, right? Um, it really is dependent on that. It's really dependent on which organization do you represent and what's their organizational commitment if you come from an organization space. If you come from an individual space, the excuses are far lesser because then you cannot say that we had barriers within the organization, etc. Those who are leaders within the organizations, those who are leaders within the movement, what happens is when you're a leader, the onus on you increases. So it may not be that you may, you may be not doing something uh, or doing something but not enough. It's because you're the leaders. It's automatically on you to then be proactive, to then say whose voices are we not hearing, right? An example from two years ago where Me Too really went like, I don't know what to say, right? The second wave, the first wave, the second wave, at each wave in India, I didn't see any mainstream feminist leaders who really were supporting and all of us were supporting the women who came out in Me Too, right? And we were really happy and sad at the same time. As women were speaking up, sad because the spaces were still not safe for them to speak up, looking at, you know, also experiencing their stress, etc. But I didn't see the leaders stand up and say, oh, why don't we hear enough of accounts from, let's say, the disability movement? Why are disabilities speaking up? Can, is it possible that we say all women face harassment and then disabled women would not face harassment? Is it really possible? Let me tell you it's not, right? And so it's not active exclusion but it's also lack of active inclusion. Now to go back to the folks, um, you know, and I always say that at some point of time, some of us became really close because like every panel, it was me, it was Haseena Khan and one other person. And now Priyanka and I share the same. Like it's, it's just, you know, either it's a feminist from the disability movement, then a Muslim feminist, then a Dalit feminist, a disabled feminist. We're all put on a panel and they're like marginalized voices. You look at any conference, classic panel called marginalized voices. Um, and we met so often in two years that I was like, oh my God, here we are, the marginalized voices. And we all were laughing at it, right? How is it that disabled feminists would not be able to speak on economic empowerment? Do you really think that there's no issue around economic empowerment and that they don't tie in into the larger economic empowerment issues? Um, so that's my question, that what we're doing in many spaces is we are putting away people around their identity. We're saying, Acha, you're disabled and Muslim, no, two, two people. Now you speak in like marginalized voices. Or like, we'll keep a special session for you. Let's do accessibility as a special session. But let's not put accessibility in the public access session. Why? And I think the biggest tension that we have not addressed, and this is an issue that I'm centering right now, is the termination of pregnancy. Termination of pregnancy of disabled women. And we don't really care. The Rights of Persons with Disabilities Act, how many feminists who work on abortion rights know this? And I know a bunch of them who know it because we work very closely together. But how many know that in the Rights of Persons with Disabilities direct loophole where pregnancies could be terminated without the consent of a disabled woman, right? 
in cases of X disabilities where X is not defined. It's, you know, so it, we can't be actors working on abortion rights if we're not inclusive enough. It's a very cheesy example, like a saying, but I'll still say it because inclusion does not mean calling someone to your party. It's about inviting them and then dragging them onto the dance floor to dance with you, right? So it's not just, oh, it's open, you come. It's not just, oh, the dance floor is all yours, you also dance. It's about dancing with them, right? And that I think is very important in our feminisms as well. Um, and on, a, on the note of uh, Me Too, by the time will be up um, we would be publishing and feminism in india had published the first indian account of me too um, a formerly article um, and rising flame has taken this up this year globally and from 3rd december onwards we we are going to be publishing about six seven global accounts of me too that women disabilities have stood up and said and particularly from within the disability movement as a closed community so do watch our website do read the articles um, if you haven't attended our webinar on sexual harassment and me too on december 7th it will be available on my youtube as well nidhi you know we're, we're coming towards the end of uh, this episode and a lot of very interesting things have been brought up that kind of leave us with a lot to think about in terms of our attitudes, in terms of our feminist activism, and just just a lot, honestly, to think about. Before we wrap up, this is like a sort of like a cheesy question that has to be asked to everybody. You know, the road to accessibility, coming back to what we started this conversation with, is a long one. And um, looking at the way that things are today, People are working towards it, but it does seem to be a while away. But could you tell us what are some immediate steps that we can take as citizens as well as those in power to reach this goal sooner? Again, citizens are very many in this country. <laughs> We're a very large population. So, um, so we, we can't have blanket things, but I'll still speak to the you know, actors within different spaces, right? Um, if you have a conference, you can just have a category saying, do you live with a disability? Would you need a reasonable accommodation? If you can't print an agenda in Braille, for example, provide human assistance, give that e-copy. There are ways to figure out. Take that little extra step, a little quote-unquote inconvenience that people call it, right? If someone is with a speech difficulty, allow them the time to make their presentation. Like, no, 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 we are in a fireside chat. You only have five minutes. God, no. Right. I mean, why would someone with a speech difficulty have to tell you that, hey, can I get that two minutes extra because, you know, I speak slowly. If somebody else comes and says that, hey, I've not outed this, but I have anxiety issues. Can I just take a minute more? Understand that. Right. And I think just trying to build our empathy, just trying to see that there are visible and invisible diversities that people come with. Um, that we all occupy spaces. And I think just thinking about this space as ours, to remember that this space doesn't belong to you or me. This space belongs to us. So never think that you're creating this space for others. This space is anyway there, right? And I think just by shifts in these two attitudes and behaviors, we as first steps would become really inclusive, really accessible, 
um, and really safe. Um, I can't tell you how many folks who work with us, not just like work within the team, but for workshops, right? We've had feedback in every workshop, trainings, webinars that we conduct that everything's so accessible. We never thought it could be so accessible. Thank you so much for making it accessible. And I really want to, I smile, but I also want to cringe that people with disabilities still have to say thank you for making things accessible. We never went, like how many of us have written emails to Zoom and to WebEx for making this digital world accessible? Nobody. We take it as a right that this is a business, we are, our clients, we are the clients, right? But people with disabilities are constantly grateful that you made this accessible. I think that needs to go away. We, we need to come to a point as a society and as a movement that we don't make anyone feel grateful to just have an access to something. And this cuts across identities uh, around, uh, across like the whole intersectionality discourse. But really, I mean, if we don't start here, we're never going to start. Thank you so much, Nidhi. I uh, keep uh, thinking about this a lot that, that I, I don't think this uh, 35 minutes of a podcast can sum up everything and it's, it can't, it uh, really can't. But I think you have sparked so many ideas uh, and so many perspectives. And, and I hope that uh, this episode will only be a conversation starter, but we will not stop there. And uh, we will talk about other issues. Like you mentioned, SRHR is so, so important. We have to become more uh, aware of the intersectionality when we do our campaigns, when we make our blueprints about how we are going to conduct workshops, uh, who are we going to invite for our panels and everything. So uh, thank you so much for being there and for giving us so many real life examples and your favorite Bollywood examples. They, they are so insightful. So thank you. I thank wish you. to meet Sanjali Labansali one day. I've publicized him so much on his back. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, I hope to. I hope to. <laughs> I can't hear for your set after you met him, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, he might offer me one of the pity inducing <laughs> disability <laughs> roles <laughs> or awe inspiring. I'm so sorry. That's the other side. As well. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us today, Nidhi. I think I can safely say on both like mine and Pragya's behalf that this has been one of the most. Um, you know, we, we can't really say fun because you, you know, you talk about so many important things, but I'm still going to go out and say it. This has been one of the funniest, most fun episodes that we've done till now. So thank you so much for taking out the time to be here with us today. It was a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It was amazing speaking with both of you. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Intersectional Feminism Desi Style. Like always, Pragya and I would love to know what you thought of this episode. So do write in to us with any feedback or comments that you have. And join us next to next Thursday. We are going to be talking about how men can benefit from feminism and how patriarchy is not just about quote unquote women's issues so i think that's going to be a rather interesting episode so do make sure that you tune in for that one and thanks so much for listening to us today 